from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschalette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Robert Koshoni on April 13, 2020. Rob is the author of the book Eagles in the Dust, Alcohol and Other Pastimes. Rob explains that most of us have grown up in a culture where alcohol is commonplace. Eagles in the Dust describes how many people believe it to be harmless and only in severe substance abuse is it considered then harmful. He disputes that moderate drinking is responsible or even beneficial. He explains this in some detail in the interview. Rob also has a YouTube channel called Bridging Beliefs. I started the interview by asking Rob to introduce us to Eagles in the Dust. The work itself is trying to examine from a philosophical, intellectual perspective a very common practice in our culture of using alcohol, and I say other chemical pastimes, meaning, say, marijuana and other drugs, mm-hmm. trying to, if you will, take a fresh look at that practice and look at philosophical reasons to justify the Baha'i teachings, among other different faiths like Buddhism, Islam, etc., that ask humanity to not use these chemicals <laughs> Why did you feel it was necessary to write this book? I think it was necessary to write this book because, at least for myself, being someone who does not drink, but who had in the past, I often come across as being very peculiar to my friends and colleagues because drinking is such a deeply entrenched part of Western culture, and most cultures, in fact, and very often it's difficult to communicate because of the normalcy of alcohol and drugs, it's very difficult to communicate to people why you would choose to not use them. I met a lot of people throughout the years who themselves uh, had chosen, but had a difficulty of actually explaining the reasons why they would do so. Usually it's taken that uh, individuals have either had really serious like alcoholism or drug abuse issues in the past, Or on the other side, that it is sort of like a a blind obedience. And I found very often that's how people took my choice to have come from. As well, very often in talking with Christians, Muslims, and Baha'is, that is very often how they were perceived. So I was trying to choose this, if you will, this teaching of Baha'u'llah and do my best to show that it is both beautiful and rational. I also chose to write this book because in my own past, I was on the other side of this lifestyle. So I myself had used alcohol and drugs and encouraged it. So I was trying to look at my own role within society, try to offer a rationale for not using and to counteract some of the influences I had in my, if you will, previous life. So this is more to help those who have chosen to not drink or take drugs from a religious perspective 
and to help them explain to others why they chose this path? I would say while there is uh, religious texts in there, say from the Baha'i writings, etc., it is a philosophical, intellectual justification of the choice to not use alcohol and drugs. But while it actually has, for example, passages from the Baha'i writings and other writings, in fact, like Hindu writings, etc., it is itself not, doesn't rely on a religious, if you will, just acceptance of it. It's trying to show that when the manifestations of God, the great teachers of religious history, like, for example, the Buddha, Krishna, Christ, in this case, the Bhavan Baha'u'llah, the central figures of the Baha'i faith, when they come, they give teachings to us that are made for the benefit of ourselves individually and for society as a whole. And they often do not go through a step-by-step, if you will, logical breakdown as to why that is. This is the, if you will, the pronouncement of the will of God unto humankind. Right? So this is trying to say, yes, this is a teaching that a Baha'is uh, would, would accept as a teaching of Baha'u'llah, but there is profound and deep reasons why. And from your perspective, Rob, what are the primary reasons for these messengers of God like Muhammad and Baha'u'llah to forbid drinking and the taking of drugs? I think it's really important to have the listener understand what the primary reason given by Baha'u'llah in his own writings, why a human being would not choose to actually drink or use drugs. And it's actually that the faculty, the central faculty of reason, which is really generally what separates us, if you will, from lower creatures, it's one of the most defining characteristics and qualities of humankind. And that these chemicals, and this is undeniable when you talk to anyone who's under the influence, it depletes it. That's why I said, let's not call them mind-altering drugs, they're mind-depleting. I think I would just frame it in the structure of how I wrote the book. It's not obvious in the title, Eagles in the Dust. It's actually written as a tour of a series of temples, as if you're on a temple ground and you are walking among a series of temples. And the first temple is the temple of the body. The second is the temple of the heart. The third is the temple of the mind. And the fourth is the temple of the soul. The work is actually set up that way to try to look at Well, here's our practice, our cultural practice of the use of alcohol and other chemical pastimes. And let's actually look at the practice of using these these chemicals, if you will, these substances, and then see how they contrast to the beauty of the temple of the human body. For example, human health. Let's look at actually how this affects the body politic, how it actually affects society and the impact. And if you take a look at it from a like ethical perspective. Is this a choice we would make as a society? If we take a look at it from the, if you will, the temple of the mind, uh, the temple of the mind is the rational faculty of humankind. And we look at the beauties that it can actually create, you know, science, philosophy, history, etc. When we look at what alcohol does to the human mind, just like we did with, you know, the heart, the body politic and other people's lives or the body, the physical body, does this really accord with the beauty and dignity that we see inherent within humankind? And then the fourth is the temple of the soul. 
does this truly give us a greater experience of our own dignity and of the sacredness of ourselves and others? Does it raise us up and actually genuinely increase virtue within human gut? So the basic reason why the manifestations of God, the, the central religious teachings of our world religions, teach that we should not use these substances is because every facet of human existence is bettered and be more beautiful when we do not rely, if you will, on chemical crutches. Now, Rob, was it difficult for you to relinquish that lifestyle when you first were introduced to the Baha'i faith? Uh, the quick answer is yes. It was actually difficult. In, in fact, that's actually how the book opens, that I was not born a Baha'i, right? And that I had tried previously in my life to, if you will, distance myself uh, from drugs and alcohol, use it less, at times fully quit it, and I had struggled very often to do so because I could actually, before becoming a Baha'i, see that they were not, if you will, congruent the potential that I saw within myself and other people. So when I first actually became a Baha'i, it was very difficult for me because that had been my life actually since before my teens. And that's just how you celebrate it. That's how I spent time with people. <laughs> and to me, I actually, you know, chose really to dive into, you know, prayer, meditation, intellectual pursuits and service, if you will, to fill that reality, <laughs> fill that part of me. But yes, it was actually challenging at first. I imagine the social aspect of it is challenging as well. Yeah, I think it was actually one of the great causes, if I'm going to be very frank, of the loss of a great deal of my friends. It really was. Because a, lot, a great deal of my life when I was in my teen years and in my early 20s was I smoked a lot of marijuana, for example, right? Mm -hmm. You would get together with friends, and if you will, smoke up, and then at other times go and have a few beers or a bottle of scotch, right? And that was really how a great deal of my life was actually framed. So when all of a sudden, on the one hand, I'm not partaking of that practice, and very often, when that happens, people view it as a very, very harsh judgment on themselves. It can upset people that you're not drinking. I still, I still experience this. So yes, it was. It's totally difficult. You said it was. It's still difficult. How how long have you been a Baha'i, Rob? I've been a Baha'i for twenty years. Okay. So in that twenty-year period, have you noticed that it's become more socially acceptable? to be a, a non-drinker or a non-pot smoker? I do. I really do have. I've seen that in like many areas of, of human <laughs> society at this point in time, there are certain things that previously they were seen as completely bizarre, right? And now are, people are more open to different choices in life generally, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a beautiful thing. So yeah, I have actually seen quite a difference. But again, at the same time, I'm older, <laughs> That's right? True. I think yeah. I think it'd be a lot more difficult if you were 21, if you were 19. Mm -hmm. I'm in my mid 40s, so that would make a difference for sure. 
think that it's it's a great challenge for a lot of young people because so much of socialization is around clubs and around parties. Now, what is the significance of the title Eagles in the Dust? So Eagles in the Dust is a parable in the middle of the book, and it's from the Baha'i writing where the actual home of an eagle would be in the lofty skies to soar. And yet when we as human beings choose not to express our potential for, if you will, spiritual and intellectual and social flight, that we become content with the dust, with mire and clay is the phrase that Baha'u'llah uses. That this actually sullies our wings and makes it difficult for us ever to ascend again. That I think that if we were to see an eagle writhing in the dirt, crawling along in, in the dust, it's actually very depressing. It's like seeing, if you will, a extremely overweight, toothless, clawless t- tiger. And we would naturally see this as being depressing. It would inspire sadness in our heart. And what alcohol and other chemical pastimes do across the entire board, physically, ethically, intellectually, and spiritually, is they actually deplete humankind of the fundamental aspects of them that make them most beautiful and precious. So the practice is that we take as perfectly normal, as perfectly commonplace, in the case of alcohol and drugs, is like an eagle in the dust. So, Rob, would you like to share an excerpt from your book for us? The, one of the passages I chose is actually the, the central theme of the image of the book, Eagles in the Dust. So I'll just begin. Okay. In a section called The Tale of Tragedy. The day is brilliant. We walk down a forest path. The sun's heat calmed by a breeze wafting through the trees. Coming to a clearing, you pause and listen to the sound of bees as they flit among the flowers. You breathe in nature's calming aromas. All around you, life bustles and thrives. Entering the meadow, you hear a sound in the tall grass, a rustling, an animal draws near. The creature is about to cross into view. Finally, you see it and your breath stops. The whatever it is drags itself onto the path, sort of slithering, its body covered in dirt, gasping for breath. Its frame twitches as it lurches along. You can't make out what it is. Suddenly, you feel ill. It's an eagle, or once was. Filth obscures its white crown, feathers muddled by dirt and grime. Its beak, used to drag itself, has become dull and cracked. The feathers on its once proud chest are gone. Its breast, mere scrapes and sores. What you wonder brought this creature so low? What made the sovereign of the skies writhe in the dirt? Its wings must be clipped, broke, or damaged. Approaching cautiously, you examine it. Search for injury, but find nothing. His body is too muddled to make anything out. Saddened, you wrap the bird in your jacket, carry it to your car, and transport it to the animal rescue shelter. Unnerved by the experience, you return each week to check on its progress. No improvements. Months go by. Still, the bird drags itself along by its beak, effacing its former beauty, despite all attempts to aid it. Finally, you express your confusion to the veterinarians at the animal shelter. Why can't it fly, you ask? Why won't it at least hop around? The answer crushes you. 
The eagle chooses not to. You are startled. Why choose to slither through mire and clay when you could soar? I pose the same question to our culture. As Bahá'u'lláh laments, ye are even as the bird which soareth with the full force of its mighty wings and with complete and joyous confidence through the immensity of the heavens until impelled to satisfy its hunger, it turneth longingly to the water and clay of the earth below and, having been entrapped in the mesh of its desires, findeth itself impotent to resume its flight to the realms whence it came. Powerless to shake off the burden weighing on its sullied wings, that bird, hitherto an inmate of the heavens, is now forced to seek a dwelling place upon the dust. The sky is our home. Why do we satisfy ourselves with dirt? Why crawl when we are meant to climb? We must consider this question. The wings of civilization are love and reason. They support the plumage of philanthropy and philosophy, self-sacrifice and science. When we clip them, we plummet. We call our recreational chemicals mind-altering drugs, but let's drop equivocations and euphemisms. They are, undeniably, mind-depleting drugs. Therefore, our cherished chemical culture is a factory for fashioning flightless eagles. So in the very next subsection, it's called, it's rather odd, uh, your pal Purdy, the confused peacock. So eagle analogy may irritate. Portraying an intoxicated person as an eagle dragging itself through the dirt seems unfair, if not overly harsh. Yet what are humanity's defining characteristics? What would be our wings? I proposed intellect and virtue, proposals difficult to deny. In each case, I must remove the defining quality. Would a timid lion, a drab rose, or a dull, brittle diamond better express it? I admit, however, a problem remains with the eagle analogy. People don't self-medicate constantly. Even hardcore drug users have lucid moments. Rather, most people partake occasionally and lead effective and happy lives. An eagle dragging itself through the dirt day after day is unfair. The obje objection, I imagine, sounds like this. Of course, I don't agree with being an alcoholic, but I don't do that. I drink a glass of wine with dinner or have a couple beer with friends. And I don't even do that every day. This was my response for years. Yet the slithering eagle analogy doesn't present the problem of constant drug use. The real problem is wanting to at all. Why would you ever choose to slither like a snake if you're an eagle? The response, I only drink once in a while, fails to grasp the argument, hence why I call this response the confused peacock. You've had a long day and want to go home and rest. However, you haven't seen your friend Purdy in quite some time, and he's such a remarkable fellow. He is, after all, a talking peacock. You find the door open. You're close friends. You walk in and call out, hey, Purdy. You hear noises from down the hall. As you get closer, you become concerned. You hear a series of grunts, a cry of pain, followed by an odd, elated giggle. Puzzled, you push open the door. Purdy is standing in the middle of his office. As you enter, he turns. Clasped tightly in his beak is a clump of his tail feathers. More are strewn on the ground. You are stunned. Purdy, what are you doing? Oh, nothing, just messing around, having some fun, he replies. Your unease grows. Why are there feathers all over the ground? Your eyes flit from the feathered floor to fixate on the bundle in his beak. Oh, I was pulling up my tail feathers, he replies calmly. 
your heart tightens, your eyes widen, you work hard to control your voice. Pretty, why would you do that? What's wrong with you? Pretty pauses, looks confused, and then irritated. What's the big deal? I don't do it all the time. Besides, they'll grow back. Imagine having to offer Purdy reasons why he shouldn't pull out his tail feathers. Imagine further that when you point out he's destroying his most beautiful feature, he responds, it's no problem, they'll grow back. Would you feel that much better if they grew back the next morning? Would all your concern disappear? I don't think so. The problem is that he doesn't see the problem. Why would he disfigure himself at all, let alone his most superb feature? Can he not see how depressing this is? Wanting to erode your intellectual abilities at all is the issue. Barry's confusion and the reason for my sadness is not primarily a matter of how frequently he tears out his plumage, nor how rapidly they return. For a confused peacock to answer, but I only do it once in a while, shows how oblivious he is to his own beauty, like we are. There's conflicting messages, even from the medical establishment, about how a glass of wine is healthy and good for the heart. How does one reconcile that with this idea of it depleting the body and mind and soul? This is something you hear a great deal. Put out a glass of wine a day can help, etc. And the entire section of the temple of the body is on that topic. I would invite actually people to actually research it. Because you hear this a lot. And what I did in actually the temple of the body is say, look, I'm not asking you to read a whole bunch of highly academic literature. I actually just, for the, if you will, the example of how easily you could call this into question, I did a Google search. And then instead of choosing small, you know, like just little articles by general people, I looked at the UK Stroke Foundation, right? Harvard Health. Right? And really genuinely looking at the actual materials on it and asking the question, is this actually good? Would you choose this for health reasons? I would suggest that if you actually look into it, the answer is no. That's a very bad idea. And there is really no actual medical institution on the planet that recommends you go out and start drinking. Are the drinking behaviors that we have as a, as a, as a society are all bad for us. I, so if one, someone says this, I would say, we'll actually really go look into even the people that say that. What does that mean? Can you get even remotely tipsy, if you will, and be being healthy? And the flat out answer is no. The second thing I would really say, Warren, I have never met a person in my entire life who drinks for health reasons, ever. I have never, ever heard someone say, I better go home and make sure I have my glass of wine to ensure that my heart is healthy. This is purely an afterthought, Warren. This is a post-justification of a cultural practice that we have, not an actual reason for drinking. And again, I'm not saying there are no human beings in the 7 billion people on this planet who might actually choose it that way. I've never, ever met one. And every person I've ever met who drinks, drinks in patterns that are highly detrimental to their health. So I don't think it's a reason anyway. The one other thing I would like to say is, is that the Baha'i faith completely and entirely recognizes 
the use of what we would call drugs for health reasons. It's actually built right into the Baha'i writings, which I cover in Eagles in the Dust. The fact that, for example, morphine might be good in certain medical situations does not justify a heroin user, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the fact that, for example, antipsychotics might really help somebody does not mean that we should start handing them out at parties. All the time, there's all this attempt on the health front to justify that, you know, here is this thing and it can be used in a medicinal area. Does not justify us actually bringing it to the social gatherings. Another question along that line is, what about medical marijuana? I treat this in a, actually a whole chapter called What About the Weed? One short point is... If you look actually in the Actas and the notes, oh, sorry, the Actas being the most holy book, one of the central texts of Baha'u'llah's revelation, uh, even within the notes itself, it recognizes that these substances, it states, if used in the case of medicinal purposes, are not prohibited. And I think it's really important to look at what the two substances that are being referred to in the most holy book of Baha'u'llah's writings it's actually opiates and hashish, opiates and marijuana. So does the Baha'i faith recognize the medicinal use of something like marijuana? This is built right into the Baha'i writings, but they should be prescribed by doctors. And it falls right back into this same issue. Do I believe, for example, that there might be medicinal uses of magic mushrooms, like psilocybin. Yes. Do I believe that you might actually have medicinal uses to the vast majority of drugs? Yes. The medicinal use in no way justifies recreational use, although we constantly attempt to do it culturally. Um, I have Tourette syndrome. So when I was actually younger, I actually used mild antipsychotics to control Tourette syndrome. And it really helped me for a time. Psilocybin, is, you know, magic mushrooms, or DMT, might treat in very, very intense cases of clinical depression, which personally, I believe I can. Does that mean we should have magic mushroom parties? Another topic that often comes up around this is the sacred use of drugs. For example, peyote vision trips, the use of magic mushrooms in sacred areas. In the past, what we might call, say, you know, indigenous religions. But also, I would suggest you can actually see such symbols within Hinduism, Zoroastrianism, called Soma or Homa. But they were crutches. So if you use, for example, a cast on your arm or a crutch, it might actually support... First of all, the ability for you to use your arm because it's not flopping around after being broken. And it can be something that will help for a time, but it has another effect. It actually atrophies the muscles. It actually weakens it, and it has to be removed for the continued development and regeneration of that person. The second principle when it comes to the sacred use of substances is there's a principle within the Baha'i faith as an evolutionary conception 
the teachings of the manifestations of God, the great prophets and seers of humankind, are trying to meet people where they are and to lift them up. And that this is, if you will, being a attending of a good, the garden of humankind over human history, and that they are trying to lift us up. So they meet us where we are. So taking, for example, something that is rampantly used, if you will, and is used in a sort of vulgar way as a recreational drug, making that sacred is even something I could conceive of in the early history of humankind. And then the removal, if you will, of that cast or crutch as time progressed. But you do actually see this in the Old Testament. So you do have the use of alcohol acceptable, but in the book, at the end of the book of Proverbs, it says, but those who are judges, princes, kings, and scribes should not use strong drink. The question is why? Because there are those who fully rely upon their intellect and their moral judgment. So you can see a progress even through dispensations. Rob, where can people find your book? First of all, on George Ronald. The George Ronald is the UK and European publisher for Baha'i Literature. It's also on Amazon, so you can actually find it on Amazon. I run a YouTube channel called Bridging Beliefs. That is a trying to actually address subjects like this. Questions from, a, say, a Muslim perspective, from a Buddhist perspective, or a Christian or a Hindu perspective, and attempting to show that the Baha'i faith, while it is a claim of religious unity, it is not just a claim. It is actually a profoundly beautiful and deep truth that can be investigated. The Baha'i faith teaches the independent investigation of truth and that we should do that, and that's really what it's about. Well, Rob, I want to thank you so much for telling us about your new book, Eagles in the Dust, Alcohol and Other Chemical Pastimes. Thank you so much. My pleasure, sir. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Robert Koshoni, author of Eagles in the Dust, Alcohol and Other Pastimes. You can also visit Rob's YouTube channel, Bridging Beliefs. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website abahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
Sometimes I wonder at the meaning of it all. Such a short, brief stay, but the memories that never seem to fade. Tell me it's okay.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org. 